A lot of dentists want to be practice owners, and that's a great ambition. Being a practice owner carries with it responsibility. If you don't want that responsibility, that's absolutely fine. But find yourself a dental career that does not involve practice ownership. And you mentioned DSOs, you know, they're a great alternative for somebody who wants to be a clinical dentist and doesn't necessarily want to deal with the peripheral stuff that practice owners have to. And you have other choices. I mean, there are military dentists, there are dentists who work for FQHCs, Veterans Affairs, academia. There are lots of careers you can have if you don't want that responsibility. The people who get into trouble are the people who try to have it both ways and they want to be a practice owner and they want to be able to take next Thursday off, but they don't want to accept the various burdens that come with it. Hey there, dental economist. If you're a dentist owner or a leader within a dental business thinking about growing production, case acceptance, patient and staff satisfaction, positive outcomes, and everything else that comes with running a dental business, then you're a dental economist and you've come to the right place. Welcome to The Dental Economist Show. We're meeting at the intersection of profit and purpose as I sit down with dental leaders who share their stories about dentistry, business, and growth. Welcome back to another episode of The Dental Economist Show. I'm your host, Mike Huffaker. Joining me today is David Harris, the CEO of Prosperident, the leading dental embezzlement investigations firm. If you've come across any of David's work, his writing, or his public speaking, then you'll know that embezzlement is, for whatever reason, completely endemic throughout our industry. But there is hope. David and his organization have worked specifically around fraud and dentistry for over 35 years. So there's really no greater authority if we want to dive deep into what practices can do to guard against this issue. Formerly an investigator at Lloyd's Bank and an army officer before that, David's written two books on the subject and is here to share some of the wisdom with us firsthand. So David, welcome to our podcast. Great to be with you, Mike. So this is a relatively new topic for me and one I think of the utmost importance. And I think just to kind of set the stage, can you give us a sense of how prevalent this is inside the industry? It's going to touch the majority of dentists sooner or later. And... I don't think that most of dentistry realizes that. The most broadly based study that was ever done was done about five years ago, and it found that 47% of dentists had already been embezzled from, and half of those more than once. I was listening to some of the other podcasts that you've done, and the initial question that popped in my head is, given some of the large sums of money that are being embezzled from these practices, how is it possible to not recognize or realize when that is happening? That's a great question. Embezzlement is more like a dripping tap than a burst pipe. The typical embezzler will take somewhere between 2 and 4% of a practice's collections, which over time can add up to a heck of a lot of money. But you know, in the month that it happens, it's not going to typically make the doctor unable to pay their bills or have to lay off people or anything like that. It's kind of below the pain point for that stuff. So what are some of the telltale things that occur that eventually lead somebody to believe that they're being stolen from? Most embezzlement is uncovered by accident. The systems that people put in place that they hope will deter or uncover embezzlement, for the most part, don't work very well. And they tend to be designed by people who don't understand embezzlement very well. So it's often some kind of unplanned, freaky thing that makes the embezzlement come to light. I mean, a big one that got uncovered early in my career 
came to light because the office manager broke her leg skiing one weekend. And Monday morning, for the first time in anybody's memory, she was not in the practice. And then one of the other receptionists got a couple of strange phone calls from patients and went to talk to one of the doctors. And then it all came unglued from there. I heard in some of the bios that were read that you were a bit of a rule breaker yourself in the past prior to getting into this line of business. Can you share a little bit about that? There was a time probably when my parents thought the chance that I would make anything of myself in life was pretty small. Got in some trouble in high school. Police used to show up at my parents' house pretty regularly. Eventually, I got put in front of a judge who decided that he would give me a choice, and the choice was green or orange, which I found out was uh, what color I could wear the next week. And you mentioned I spent time in the Army. That, that was why. And I was good at breaking into houses, and that talent and that thought process have served me well in life, which probably not everybody gets to say. So how did you end up in dental? Well, I would like to tell you that I had some master plan, you know, that I saw an opportunity and I went after it. It was 1989, to give you the chronology. I had quit my job. I was working for a bank and I got frustrated one day and quit. And I moved back to my hometown and I was sitting home watching TV, bored silly. And of course, in 1989, there was no Netflix. There was no video recorder. It was you know, what you got on the TV in August was what the network gave you, which wasn't much. So I was just climbing the walls and the phone rang and it was a guy I'd been in high school with who had become a dentist. And he said, I think my front desk person is stealing from me and David, I have no one else to call. And his timing was perfect. You know, I was so happy to have a diversion. So I said to him, I'll meet you tonight after you close and we'll get to the bottom of it. And I went over to his practice that night and I was able to unravel pretty fast what she was doing. And my friend asked me to come in the next morning to help him fire this woman because he didn't really want to do that on his own. I knew I was going to be as bored tomorrow as I was today. So I said, sure. So I helped fire her and my friend was appreciative. He promised to buy me dinner that I'm still waiting for. And I just kind of shrugged my shoulders and walked away. And I didn't really see a career opening or anything like that. I just thought, you know, that was interesting. Two weeks later, Mike, I had an appointment at my own dentist's office. And I had my hand on his front door and I was about to go in and I happened to look through the glass panel in the door and sitting at his front desk was the same woman I helped fire two weeks ago. So I said something I will not repeat. I ran to a payphone because in 1989, you just didn't have a cell phone with you. And I used a little bit of deception to call the practice and get past the gatekeeper who I fired two weeks ago and talked to my dentist and explained to him about the time bomb ticking away at his front desk. And he panicked and hired me. And that was my first client. So a fortunate circumstance or fortunate for you resulted in the creation of this business. And over 30 years later, you've worked hundreds, maybe thousands of cases at this point and have become the preeminent expert in the industry at uncovering embezzlement. It's fascinating. I think the inception stories for businesses and how they come about. And yours is certainly an interesting one. The fact that the same employee happened to be at your dentist that you were walking in is pretty wild. That goes to something, a topic that I've heard you speak on before that I think is really important, and that is hiring the right people. Can you talk a little bit, if we're looking to treat the disease, not the symptoms itself, and it is such a prevalent issue in dental practices, what are some of the things that an office can do to protect themselves against even inviting the wrong person into that circle of trust? 
You just nailed it. The best protection possible against this disease is not to hire the people who are going to give it to you, the carriers, if you like. And I can go in a room with a hundred dentists and I can ask them to put up their hands if they enjoy hiring staff and nobody does. Dentists hate that job. And like any job that you hate, you tend not to want to prolong it for yourself. So what I find is that most hiring decisions are made in dentistry, knowing a lot less about the person that you're about to hire than you could and should. And interestingly, my last call before this one was a two-practice configuration, and they recently realized that somebody who's worked for them for about eight years had a previous conviction for embezzlement before that. And she's worked there for eight years, and they had no idea. And that just shouldn't happen. So it's tough. We have to do a lot of things when we hire somebody. I mean, you're looking for a, a set of prerequisites. I mean, obviously, if somebody's a hygienist, they need a hygiene degree and, and a hygiene license to do it. And then beyond that, you're looking for some skills. And beyond that, you're looking for somebody who's got a personality that's going to mesh with your patients and your staff and things like that. So you're already trying to juggle a lot of balls when you hire. And what I want a dentist to do is to add one more layer to this problem and to say, what if what they're telling me isn't true? Kind of go with the trust but verify method. Trust but verify. And I say those words a lot. But you asked about specific things. I mean, one big one is a criminal records check. And something I want your audience to hear loudly and clearly, Mike, is that 70 million Americans, which is saying one in four adults has a criminal record. And to be hiring people without digging into that part of their lives, just playing Russian roulette, and eventually you're going to lose. The second thing that is really important is talk to former employers. And I have a very simple rule. Before I hire somebody, I want to talk to at least everybody they've worked for for the past five years. Do you find that people are unwilling to provide that information? Sometimes they're unwilling to provide the right information. They will tell you who they work for, but sometimes the phone number that they give you for their former employer isn't actually the former employer, it's their uncle on a disposable cell phone who's been instructed to give them a good reference. So if somebody applied for a job with me and wouldn't tell me where they worked last week, there's no way I would interview them, let alone hire them. So that's not a particular problem, but sometimes people with baggage try to hide the baggage, or maybe they stretch the dates that they worked for one employer to make another employer disappear from their resume. You know, that kind of stuff happens. But somebody who just says, no, I'm not going to tell you where I've worked for the past five years. I mean, they're, they have to know that the conversation's not going to ever progress past that. So do you believe that, I don't actually know the answer to this. What, and I'm not sure if there is a really clear answer, but what percentage of dental practices are doing background checks when they're hiring employees or drug testing or anything along those lines? Very few and not enough. And to me, background checking is the entire process, which includes criminal record check and drug tests and former employers, maybe social networking. To me, that's background checking. Criminal record check is that sort of narrow thing where you try to see if somebody's been convicted of a crime. But you mentioned drug testing, and let me pick that up and run with it for a minute. It astounds me that the norm in dentistry is not to check applicants for drug use. I couldn't get a job with FedEx delivering the crap people buy on Amazon without a drug test. And yet I can work in a dental practice that has confidential information and money. Oh, and of course, the key to the pharmacy. That makes no sense. And dentists are 
nice altruistic people who look for the best in everybody and it it makes them wonderful people but you know at some point you got to put on your cynic hat and say not everybody shares the values i do and i have to kind of have some means of triaging those who do from those who don't i'm curious do you think have you seen any uptick in fraud or embezzlement over the last few years as the marketplace for employees has become so tight that it feels like maybe a higher level of desperation exists within practices to bring people on without the proper vetting processes because they might just be so excited to find somebody that is available and willing to work in their office and they have these huge needs and big workloads uh, to keep the practice functioning. Has there been any correlation that you've seen with this? Is that a real thing? I was talking to a dentist the other day about this problem, and he said, right now, my criterion for hiring is two feet and a heartbeat. He said, you know, I cannot remotely be choosy. And my comment to him was, I get it. And that may prompt some adaptation in a couple of ways. First of all, it may force you to look at people that you just wouldn't in other times or to overlook certain flaws in their background that, again, at other times would be a showstopper. It may also influence the sequence. In other words, one thing people don't want to do now is delay the hiring process for a pre-employment screening. In other words, you know, if you say to somebody, well, yeah, you know, I'd like to hire you, but we have some testing to do that's going to take about two weeks. And after that, if you pass everything, we'll be happy to hire you. I mean, most people presented with that have other employers who are willing to take them with basically no scrutiny and they'll they won't still be on the market in two weeks. What I say to employers is that doesn't change what you do, it changes when you do it. And with somebody like that, what you might end up doing is hiring them probationarily and then doing the screen. So it becomes post-hiring screening as opposed to pre. And if you end up not hiring them, that makes a little bit of a mess potentially, but it's a whole lot better than either not doing the screening at all or losing the employee because you put a wall in front of them that they decided just wasn't worth climbing. Right. The hire becomes contingent on passing background checks and reference checks. Exactly. And what I said to the dentist who said to me, two feet in a heartbeat, was this. If you knew somebody was an axe murderer, would you still hire them? And he said, of course not. Okay. So you have to know. It makes a lot of sense. So walk me through a little bit. If... I'm a dental practice and I have suspicions and we call Prosperident. What does that process look like? How much time do I need to spend with your team? What do you guys do? Is it really intrusive process that's going to disrupt my practice? Are other members of the team going to need to be in the loop as to what's happening? Can you provide a little bit of a paint the picture for me as to what it would look like for someone? You bet. And you just hit on something really important. When we do our investigations, they are completely invisible to everybody but the practice owner. We very commonly, Mike, are called to investigate on somebody who's still working in the practice and can't have any idea that this is going. So our whole methodology is built around stealth. One of the things that we do is that we actually clone a doctor's practice management software. So when somebody calls us, the last call I had was a practice that used OpenDell. And I said to the practice owner, we will make a copy of the open dental in your practice. We will have a working copy here in our computer lab and all of our investigation will be done in the working copy. So your staff will have absolutely no clue that we're on the job. And even if the suspect isn't there anymore, we still tend to encourage that because I don't, 
I don't want somebody who's still working in the practice to form a former employee and say, I don't know what the heck you did, but the doctor's got forensic people crawling all over this place. So we work hard on stealth. That's really helpful to know. What is the average length of time that an investigation takes? In general, we try to cycle investigations between eight and 10 weeks. So from the time we're hired to the time we hand over our final report, our target is eight weeks in a smaller kind of similar configuration. And if it was a four doctor oral surgery practice, it might be more like 10 weeks. Those are the targets. We don't make them 100% of the time, but that's kind of the yardstick that we hold ourselves to. Sometimes we run into a complication. You know, some of the things we do are dependent on maybe the cooperation of a third party somewhere. So there are lots of things that have the potential to hold us up. But, you know, that's kind of what we strive for. The other question you asked me a minute ago was how much of the doctor's time is involved? And there's a little bit, but we do our best to minimize it. When we do an investigation, we start with information gathering. So I mentioned cloning practice management software. That's part of it. We also typically will want things like bank account statements and merchant terminal statements from the credit card machine in the practice and stuff like that. So there's a process of assembling the raw materials that we're going to need. And that tends to take a little bit of the doctor's time. We have people internally who will work with our clients to minimize the time. For example, a lot of doctors will give us the their online banking information for an hour so that we can download the stuff that we're going to need from their bank. And then we just tell them, okay, we're finished, change the password and lock us out. If somebody's comfortable giving us that information, we can sort of save them an hour of time poking around on their online banking. But there's a little bit of time up front. Once we have all the information, then the file goes to one of our investigators, of which we have about 15, and they all have dental backgrounds. You know, they've all, on average, worked in a dental practice for about 12 years and they will start their work. And the basic progression of our work is to first find things that are anomalous and then to decide if they move to suspicious. So we might see, for example, somebody who had an hour and a half appointment in the doctor's chair and there was no fee charged. And that might be a case where we go back to the doctor and say, do you know anything about why this patient got an hour and a half of your time for nothing? When it, we've already ruled out that it was not a part of a multi-unit appointment, you know, it wasn't a, a crown or an implant or something like that. And the doctor may say, well, yeah, that's my brother-in-law. And as much as I despise him, I can't charge him for dentistry because my wife would get mad at me. Or they might say, no, I, you know, as far as I know, that patient should be paying. In which case that transaction moved from anomalous to suspicious. All right. So I'm a dentist. I am suspicious that something's happening. I give you guys a call. You come in. It's a stealth operation. There's some limited amount of time required on my part to provide the proper documentation. You guys uh, replicate the practice management software database so that you can comb through it and do all the reconciliation that needs to be done. You look for anomalies. It takes anywhere between 8 to 10, maybe 12 weeks. At the end of this process, what is the best outcome that can be expected? Is there ever recovery of funds? Is it just the ability to extract somebody that is stealing from you from your practice? Is there jail time? Walk me through the different scenarios that are available. Absolutely. Everybody who's been stolen from gets some amount of money back, whether they get back 100% of what was stolen or 60% or 20% depends on a bunch of factors, but everybody will recover money. And the one thing that 
not every dentist realizes is that they have insurance coverage for this. Yeah, there's built into a doctor's property insurance is a clause called employee dishonesty coverage. And the default amount that dentists have is $25,000, which compared to the amounts that we see stolen may not be a whole lot, but it's enough to make this exercise cash positive for them. Beyond getting insurance money, there are potentially two places you can get repayment. The first is if somebody's been cashing your checks at their bank, you actually have a claim against their bank for that. So, you know, that's a fact-specific theft pattern. We don't see it in every embezzlement, but if you have been stolen from and somebody's been cashing your checks, you have a pretty clear line to repayment. And the third source of recovery is the thief. I will say overall, not a lot of money comes back from that source. I mean, most of the people stealing are also pretty skilled at spending the money. So, you know, there tends not to be a whole lot of recovery, but it's sometimes it happens. You know, we did an investigation a few years back and the thief was the daughter of the mayor of the town. And he would throw a significant amount of money at this to not have his daughter's name in the newspaper. So sometimes there's a third party that will come along and bail somebody out. We also had one thief who was stealing and then she won $3 million in the state lottery. Did she keep stealing or was that the end of her criminal career? Well, funny you should ask. You know, most people who won $3 million, if they worked in a dental practice, would quit their job the next day. And on the way out the door, they would say whatever it is they always really wanted to say to their boss and just never felt empowered. She didn't do that. She kept working and she kept stealing. And here's the part, Mike, that is kind of instructive. The amount she was stealing each month after she won $3 million went up which tells you it's not always about money. Sometimes this is a power thing or a, I feel like society is not rewarding me properly thing. So I'm curious, we work with a lot of DSOs and larger groups. Do you notice, is there a higher level of rigor from an operational or hiring process that is typical inside DSOs or group organizations versus a solo or independent practice. Is anybody open to this type of theft crosses all borders, regardless of the type of organization or dental practice? And maybe as a follow-up, has there been any thief rings that you've seen where somebody will go and infiltrate like a DSO that is using all the same software and use all the same tricks and have multiple people placed in different offices in order to extract a higher amount of embezzlement. I have seen a little bit of that. There are factors that kind of work in each direction in terms of DSOs. And we work with several of the biggest DSOs in the country. We also work with solo practitioners and kind of everybody in between. And DSOs get embezzled pretty regularly. And I think there are a couple of reasons. The first is a lot of them are overconfident about how good their systems are. And keeping financial control over a DSO is just tremendously challenging. You know, a lot of them, especially if they're growing by affiliation, will have multiple practice management offers. I mean, we work with one right now that is running 17 different practice management offers. So you have a regional manager who's kind of the core person in in keeping an eye on what individual offices are doing. And they might look after eight offices and they might have four different softwares. So they have no way of aggregating the information, for example. And they may not personally know all those softwares really well. And there's a vulnerability there. The second issue for DSOs, and to be clear, they do some things better than solo practices. For example, they all have a concept of reconciliation where collections are lined up with deposits 
by somebody outside the practice, whether it's that regional manager or maybe there's a controller function at head office that does it, but there's somebody who at least is looking at that, which I wouldn't say for the majority of solo practices. On the other hand, you have a couple of factors playing the other way. The first one is that every thief has to rationalize what they do. So we all learned on the playground when we were three years old that you don't take other people's things. And thieves learned that too. They just need to find a way to tell themselves, I know that in general stealing is wrong, but it's okay here because. And it's always easier to rationalize stealing from a bigger organization than the doctor who works 20 feet away from you and she signs your paychecks. So rationalization is definitely a factor with DSOs. The other factor is that in a lot of cases, DSOs are managed by people who didn't come through the dental stream. There are several DSOs that hire the regional managers very deliberately out of retail or customer service fields because they view themselves, I think, quite rightly, as being in the customer service business as well as the drill and fill business. And these people don't necessarily understand the minutia well enough to spot something that's wrong. So you have a situation, Mike, where there's kind of a knowledge gap between the people in the practice and the people trying to supervise them. And that definitely plays in the favor of a thief. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So we talked a bit about systems and, you know, you mentioned a, a practice that was using open dental. I heard you speak on, I think it was Howard Ferron's podcast and is it called Pegboard? What was the name of that? The ledger? Pegboard was the manual system that used to be used before practice management software became a thing. In the first five or six years that I was working in this field, almost all my investigations were in Pegboard. So if we started with Pegboard, where everything's on paper, and then there's been the transition migration into server-based solutions, your Dentrix, your EagleSoft, your Open Dental, and then over the past, let's say, decade, a broader transition into cloud-based solutions. You've got, you know, our solution, Denicon, Curve, Ascend, you know, all of those guys. Is there a difference in your ability to conduct a proper investigation dependent upon the software that a practice is using? And does some software make it easier than others and why? Good question. And I'll start by saying that yours is among our more preferred softwares to work with. And we like Denticon for a few reasons, but yeah, it's certainly one of our favorites. Yes, in software, what becomes relevant to us is things like the details that are captured in an audit trail. For example, there's one major software that tracks modified transactions, but weirdly, it doesn't track who made them. So you can see that something was modified, but you can't tell which terminal or which logged in user did it. I have no explanation for this, but it drives us crazy because that is something, of course, that we would like to know. So every software has its little quirks and some of them make it a little bit easier or harder for us to work with. Cloud software does a few things for us. And I'll just explain our limited perspective on the advantage of cloud. First of all, we know that the program itself has not been adulterated. Yes. You know, some software, and I mentioned Open Dental a minute ago, the source code is open. So if you know what you're doing well enough, you can change the source code of Open Dental. I've never seen anybody do that, but it's at least possible. You can't do that with Denicon. The second thing is that in terms of our access, it's easier to get at the cloud. I mentioned how we clone software and, you know, that's a kind of labor intensive exercise that we do because it lets us do our work in secret. Well, with cloud software, 
we don't have to do any of that. It's already set up for us to make remote access to. So it's a little bit easier for us to get at as well. So some advantages to cloud for us, some advantages to software that has thought about the needs that somebody like us might have and has addressed. And again, in praise of your software, I will say we went to your organization several years ago with a couple of changes that we were looking for you to make. And you made them within a couple of months. And that spoke volumes to us. No, that's great. We take that seriously. And I think it's a lot of elements that are unthought of in many practices related to, well, one, audit trails don't help so much if people share logins and are using the same information inside the software. So ensuring that people are logging in with their own credentials is important. And, you know, we've recently released single sign-on, which really helps with those controls. And separate from that, the roles and permissions that are set up within a software can really help limit the access that somebody has to do certain things, avoiding cash transactions or doing something else. And so I think that, you know, maybe not as much thought in the actual purchasing process of a software solution goes into having these controls, but they are really important. Yeah. And the other side of that too, you're absolutely right. You know, the office that uses the Unicode where there's one login that everybody uses, everybody's got admin rights. Yes. Roles and permissions and the rights within which what people can do in the software, also incredibly important. We have a whole slew of controls in our software that will help prevent certain people from taking certain actions that can make it much harder for them to do these negative illegal things inside your practice. And so I would say that those are a couple of the just general best practices that the practices should look at when they're configuring their software to ensure that they're protecting themselves as much as possible. What are some of the other actions inside a dental office that can be taken separate and apart from the hiring process, which we recognize is incredibly important, but that will establish kind of a culture that makes it more difficult for a dentist to be taken advantage of? Great question. And I'll lay out a few things. The first thing is, doctor, print your own damn reports. As soon as you allow somebody to print a report from your software and hand it to you, you've given up control over the parameters used to generate that report. And you open the door quite widely to selective reporting. So that's the first thing. And I run into many doctors who cannot print a report to save their lives. And I think you will confirm to the audience that it's not that hard. It is not that hard. Absolutely not. It is something you could learn in five minutes if you were so inclined. The second thing I'll say is that there are two parts to using software properly and tying it to the money flow in your practice. The first part is to make sure that what's entered into your software is accurate and that you have seen everything that's entered into your software. So the way we do that is at the end of each day, there's a day-end report that software generates. Its name is a little bit different in each software, but why don't you tell the audience what it's called in Denticon? Yes, it is called the end-of-day report in Denticon. Very simple and elegant. So the first thing is that end-of-day report needs to be looked at by the doctor, and it needs to be looked at that day. Just throwing it in your inbox as you're rushing out the door and resolving to look at it tomorrow won't work. You know, the memory tomorrow morning of what happened in your practice today is going to be about 60% of what your memory is at the end of today. So you need to look at that, paying particular attention to things like adjustments 
and deletions and modifications and making sure that you understand what happened and if you're not sure why it happened. So that's part one. And what I suggest to a dentist is after they've reviewed that report, put their initials on it so they know that that's the one they saw and then lock it up, put it in a file cabinet and turn the key. So we're trying to make sure that what was entered initially reflected what happened. And this is a chance to catch deceptive transactions that are part of embezzlement. It's also a chance to catch just where somebody couldn't read somebody else's writing and they misentered something. All of those things are viable. The second part is, was there anything done in a way that I shouldn't have seen it? And this is where we talk about something called articulation. And to a dentist, articulation means the way the, the jaws fit together. This is kind of the same concept, but now we're talking about financial articulation. And here's how it works. If you're a dentist and your office was open 19 days this month, if in your left hand you have 19 day end reports, and in your right hand you have an end of month report that totals up the collections, adjustments, and fees for the month, is it a fair statement that if you added up each of those numbers for the 19, they should be exactly the same as for the one? Sure. So do that. And what you're preventing here is somebody coming in on a Saturday, doing a bunch of things that they don't want you to see, printing an end of day report and then shredding it. Because if they do that, the articulation won't happen. Okay. So the point of articulation is to make sure that everything that happened this month happened on one of those 19 day end reports that you saw. Some of that goes back to software also, because you can have software that will prevent any of the manipulation of past activity from previous days. Yeah, I hear that. And yet I see people find a workaround. If you go at that with criminal intent, you'll find a way around it. And the third part of the interaction between software and money is the money part. So software totals up collections and collections should go in the bank. And therefore the total collections, according to practice management software should be the same as the amount that goes into the bank. And there are some dentists who scrutinize this carefully, Mike, and then there's the other 80%. If I'm a thief and I'm working for a doctor who does not compare collections against deposits, stealing is so easy. I don't have to do anything creative in software. If I can just peel away some of the deposit, nobody will notice. Because the challenge once I start trying to cook software is keeping patient account balances accurate, keeping collections lining up with deposits. But if I don't have to do that, then the laziest thief on the planet can steal. So the way that this has been traditionally done is not optimal. What dentists have all been taught is at the end of each day, you should look at the bank deposit and compare it to the collections according to your software, and they should be the same. And the problem with that is what are called timing differences. An increasing percentage of a dentist's revenue happens in a way that it's captured on a different day by software versus when it goes to the bank. So as an example, if somebody pays $3,000 to your practice today, my credit card, your software will treat that as a payment today, but it probably won't hit your bank for two more days. So trying to do that comparison in real time is challenging. And my basic suggestion to dentists is don't try to do this every day. Instead, let's widen the size of what we're looking at and let's do this once a month instead of every day. And the advantage of doing that once a month is that most of those timing differences self-resolve. So if somebody pays by credit card on the 12th of the month and it arrives at the bank on the 14th, when you look at the month as a whole, that's not a timing difference anymore. The timing difference you see when you look at a month is transactions where 
one half of them overlaps the beginning of the month or where part of it overlaps the end of the month. And relative to what's going on in the middle, that's relatively small. So rather than try to do this every day, which dentists have tried to do since 1866, when the first dental school graduate came out, instead of that, let's look at a month. It takes a lot less time in aggregate and it's way simpler. But at the end of the day, it requires attention. And you can't just kind of avoid taking these measures and just cover your eyes and hope that nothing's happening. You really need to be diligent and ensure that, you know, you're keeping track of these things. It's serious. It's part of your business. And you can't make the assumption that nothing untoward is happening in your practice. A lot of dentists want to be practice owners. And that's a great ambition. Being a practice owner carries with it responsibility. If you don't want that responsibility, that's absolutely fine. But find yourself a dental career that does not involve practice ownership. And you mentioned DSOs, you know, they're a great alternative for somebody who wants to be a clinical dentist and doesn't necessarily want to deal with the peripheral stuff that practice owners have to. And you have other choices. I mean, there are military dentists, there are dentists who work for FQHCs, Veterans Affairs, academia. There are lots of careers you can have if you don't want that responsibility. The people who get into trouble are the people who kind of have it both ways and they want to be a practice owner and they want to be able to take next Thursday off, but they don't want to accept the various burdens that come with it. Yeah, that's really well said. I'm curious, you know, where do you go to learn? What sort of sources do you seek out and what is important to you from a continuing education perspective? I have the privilege of working with 22 very smart, knowledgeable people and their strengths lie in different areas. And one of the best things we get the chance to do is learn from each other. So we have a whole corporate education program that involves everything from people seeking external certification. So the, the most common fraud certification is called CFE, Certified Fraud Examiner. And about half of our people have that and most of the rest are working towards it. So there are external opportunities like that. But then we do a lot of in-house training. When we hire somebody who's on a path to become an investigator, they get mentored by one of our more senior people. We do a lot of knowledge sharing. I mean, once a month, we will pick one of our people to present an interesting case that they've worked on. And they, you know, we, for a couple of hours, they'll kind of walk us through what they did and what they found and what they learned from it. So that's a good place for us to learn. I read a lot on fraud and embezzlement. I'm always looking for for example, techniques that would work in some other business that might be able to spill over. The other thing we do, Mike, about once a quarter is kind of neat. We lock our senior people in a room and we say to them, okay, come up with a new fraud scheme. I mean, find a new wrinkle that nobody's thought of. And we just kind of sit there with blank paper and see what comes out. And the interesting thing about that is almost every time we come up with something we've never seen before, within six to eight months after that, we see it somewhere. In other words, we have no monopoly on this thought process. And what we're doing in that room is the same thing that 100,000 thieves somewhere are doing as well. But once you've done it, it gives you a better ability to recognize it. That's it. And to figure out how to prevent it in the future. And I won't pat myself on the back to the extent that it's never happened before and that somebody thinks of it more or less at the same time we do. And that's why we find it. You know, it's probably been happening in exactly what you say. Once we have built that in our think tank, then we're looking for it. And sure enough, we find it. What's the largest fraud case that you've ever worked on or uncovered? About two million. Two million. Wow. Was that a 
multi-practice group, a single practice? No, it was a fairly unassuming two-doctor practice. Wow. Over a long period of time? Yeah, about seven years. Oh, goodness. Still a lot of money each year. No, that's a tremendous amount of money. Last question for you. As we enter 2024, what are you excited about? What are you guys working on? Anything just personally or professionally that you're really excited about right now? I'm excited about a lot of things right now. I mean, we are super busy. We're having this conversation on the last day of January, 2024. This has been our busiest month ever for new clients. And I've still got a couple more who are likely to commit to us before this month ends in a few hours. So we are super busy and we're about to, we hired a bunch of people last year. We're going to go out and do it again, I think fairly soon. So I'm excited about that. I'm really excited about the people I work with. Our investigators are smart, dedicated, caring people. You know, they all take sometimes distraught dentists more or less by the hand and walk them through a a process that makes them feel much better. But we tend to start working with people at a very low point in their life. And I just can't believe how caring and how empathetic our people can be for the dentists. Beyond that, they're just damn good at what they do. And I learn from these people all the time. So I'm certainly excited about that. And I'm excited about our prospects. We are getting in all the right doors. We are getting a lot of interest from some pretty big players in the dental world. It's a great time to be part of Prosperity. That's really good to hear. I think that there's maybe nothing more important than enjoying the people that you work with. And if you are really enjoying what you are working on while also working with great people, that's just a recipe for success. So congratulations to you guys, David. And and thank you again so much for coming on today. I really appreciated the conversation. Great to meet you and enjoyed the chat. The Dental Economist Show is brought to you by Planet DDS. To find out more about how cloud-based dental software by Planet DDS helps unleash dentists and their staff to focus on patient care, visit www.planetdds.com. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes by following wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.